From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. The Iliad, the first great book of Western civilization, a story often referred to as if we already know it, or should. I thought I was supposed to love Homer's epic poem, woven together from oral histories of the final critical weeks of the Trojan War, written some 3,000 years ago. But I recall being confused and let down when I first tried to get through its unpronounceable list of Greek and Trojan soldiers boarding ships for battle, dense pedigrees of dozens of characters. Well, I have been rereading, rereading it, and I am a new convert, thanks in part to Stan Lombardo, who published a highly praised modern English translation back in 1997. The goal of his translation is for the Iliad to be spoken aloud, and it will be this weekend to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Michael C. Carlos Museum at Emory University. Lombardo is Professor Emeritus of Classics at the University of Kansas in Atlanta for the reading, as I will be. But I've invited him here to talk about bringing these ancient words to life. Stan, welcome, and thank you for being here. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So you, of course, are an Iliad evangelist. You know, you've been teaching classics for decades. But may I take advantage of your your experience and and give us a little bit of basics, you know, a little bit of Iliad for dummies, if if that's okay? Iliad for dummies. As you said, the Iliad is uh, a poem that was actually composed around the year 800 B.C., probably without the aid of writing. It probably wasn't written down until the 500s uh, in Athens. It's about 400 pages long uh, in English translation and about that long in Greek. It's set in the last year, the 10th year, of the Trojan War, the war uh, that was fought between the Greeks and the Trojans. The Greeks invaded Troy to win back Helen. Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships. Yes, Helen of Sparta, the Greeks would have said, you know, because Paris abducted her. Maybe she went willingly. And uh, the Greeks launched an enormous invasion uh, to win her back. The Iliad uh, centers on uh, an episode in the 10th year of the war when Agamemnon, the commander-in-chief, has to give up his prize, that is, the woman he won, and this was his war prize, uh, because uh, the priest, uh, her father, the priest Calchas, um, prayed to Apollo to cause the Greeks a terrible plague, and uh, he, he was forced to give her back. But... Uh, Achilles argued uh, with Achilles argued with Agamemnon, and the result was that uh, Agamemnon appropriated Briseis, Achilles' prize. That's what sets the action in the Iliad. Eventually, this rage against Priam and some of the Greek army is redoubled and redirected when Achilles' beloved friend. Patroclus is killed by Hector. So that's a big turning point. Mm -hmm. He finally kills Hector, desecrates Hector's body, commits what we would call war crimes, sacrificing 10 Trojan boys uh, on the the funeral pyre of uh, Patroclus, and is finally redeemed at the very end of the Iliad by Priam, king of Troy, who makes his way at night to Achilles' hut, sits next to him, kisses the hand that has killed his son, and Achilles relents, allows Hector's desecrated body to be returned. The god Apollo has kept it uh, intact and 
free from corruption. And the Iliad ends with the funeral of Hector, which symbolizes you know, the resolution of uh, Achilles' rage. So that's how it hangs together as a story. Woof. Did this battle actually happen, or is this a mythic battle? It probably did happen. Um, some later Greek uh, commentator, uh, Dio Chrysostom, said, well, you know, actually, uh, the Greeks didn't win the war. The Trojans won the war. So it's <laughs> not is, really... <laughs> the first story of spin, actually, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> on some level. <laughs> so we don't know. But there was some kind of invasion, some kind of war, and Troy has been excavated, and it looks like, yeah, something happened there. <laughs> so, know? But it does center around war and violence and heroism in many ways, yes, these topics that are so resonant to us today. And we know that veterans groups are now performing parts of That's the... Absolutely Iliad, right. yeah. and they, they teach it at West Point. Yes, uh, uh, it's thought to have been Alexander the Great is thought to have slept with a copy of it at his pillow. Uh, a, a copy hand corrected by Aristotle. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what we're saying is that in many ways this forms our our picture of war as bringer of glory to young fighters and destroyer of lives, you know, post-conflict destruction, it has shaped so much of the way that we approach war and conflict. It has, and not only destruction of lives, but destruction of moral character. Mm -hmm. As Jonathan Shea uh, makes clear in uh, two books, uh, Achilles in Vietnam. Jonathan Shea was a psychiatrist working with PTSD Vietnam uh, veterans, and he just happened to read uh, the Iliad in the late 1980s and noticed that the speeches in the Iliad sounded like the transcripts from his patients. And so he really dove into it and he has a sequel, uh, Odysseus in America, what happens to the veterans when they return home. Uh, so it's uh, really caught on uh, in the circles that you just mentioned, uh, thanks to Jonathan Shea. Right, and he, he calls them moral wounds, doesn't he? Moral that these wounds, are yeah. the, that people yeah. cannot see, but deep within us. But of course, it yeah. is not all uh, blood and gore and violence. There's a great deal of comic relief in the way that the gods behave. Yeah, the gods are mostly there for comic relief. <laughs> <laughs> The way they quarrel among themselves and Athena and Hera plotting against Zeus and see what they can do. and um, The gods, uh, there are no consequences of anything for the gods. You know, uh, they can do whatever they want. They're, they're moving players yeah, around that, on the field. That, that's right. Uh, but the other uh, aspect of the Iliad that sometimes is overlooked is the presentation of women and how their lives uh, are affected. Uh, so I'd urge... If you're coming to the a performance, and I hope you do, pay attention to the scenes where Helen, for mm-hmm. instance, appears at, at the very beginning, and she comes in twice more. And Andromache, uh, Hector's wife, who also has several appearances, and Hecuba, uh, the wife of Priam, uh, king of Troy. And the Iliad actually ends with uh, three speeches, one by each of these women, at the very end of the poem. Yeah, it's it's what's peculiarly merciless about war to women and children, those yeah. who are not on the battlefield. I'm speaking with Stan Lombardo. He's Professor Emeritus of Classics at the University of Kansas. And we, he and I, along with other local actors, are going to be reading his translation of the Iliad on stage this weekend at Emory University. The whole weekend, basically. It seems so, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a long one. Um, the, the Iliad begins with the words, how would you translate those first words? We say, Sing, goddess, the wrath of Achilles' son. Uh, Yes, that's another translation. I begin, rage. Sing, goddess, Achilles' rage. 
So I repeat the word at the be- at the end of the line. As so well. what so about what what theme. is what does that distinction bring to us? So the word in Greek, the first line of the Iliad Greek is "men in naiadithea peleia jo akileos ulamenein." Menus is a word that can be translated as anger, wrath, or rage. It is only used of Achilles. Otherwise, it's only the gods have manus. So wrath is a good translation because we think of a wrathful god. We don't think of gods in, in a rage. But uh, Achilles' uh, anger is much more than wrath. It's an all-consuming rage that's destroying his character. So that's different from divine wrath. Yes. Yeah. So you have a, well, let's say, I don't think Homer was any kind of peacenik, I think. Yeah. He wasn't a peacenik, no. <laughs> but he was not looking at the horror of war necessarily. You, it sounds to me as if that's one of the things you are pulling from this. The horror yeah. of, of war. I think he is aware of the horror of war and uh, the glory that human heroes get from war. I think he looks at war as something like destiny, something that you simply have to put up with. It's simply there. It's part of the human condition. It's not as if he's for it or against it, uh, but it becomes uh, the background for human drama. Well, we did mention that this is something that uh, many veterans are working with right now, this kind of ancient text. And here's a former Navy SEAL. His name is James Hatch. He's a freshman in college at the age of 52 at Yale, I think, talking about the Iliad when he spoke with NPR's Mary Louise Kelly. What class are you on the way to? Uh, literature. Literature. All right. Well, We're enjoy. discuss mm. the Iliad, which me off, but I have to get through it. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why is it you off? I think it gives the reader an unrealistic view of war and honor and things like that. What do you think, Stan? Uh, does he say an animalistic view of war? No, he said unrealistic. Oh, unrealistic view of war. Uh, some people think that um, Homer's description of wounds and so forth was so accurate that he must have been a field surgeon, huh. uh, actually. But others think, you know, this isn't how it happens. Um, the wars that we are familiar with, uh, the deaths are horrible and lingering. Uh, no, no one lingers in the Iliad. Uh, they're, they're struck by an arrow or a spear or sliced through with a sword, and they're dead uh, immediately. That's not usually how death happens uh, on a battlefield. We don't have any of the stench, miasma, that uh, actually is uh, part of war. So I understand uh, you know, where the student is coming from. Well, I have to say, yeah. for me, you know, this language of, you know, killing Trojans on foot from chariots, horses charging into battle with foam and manes blazing, it was so alive to me in, in a way. Homer does bring things to life, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And you helped He's do that. He's a supreme poet. But you have said that your performance is the beginning and end point of the Iliad. How does performing transform these words on the page? Yeah. So I first uh, encountered uh, the Iliad in, in Greek when I was about the student's age, I, I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, poetry was my life, uh, but I had no idea. This, here was an immortal river of poetry when I first started to read Homer in Greek. And I had memorized and recited reams of English poetry. So this this was so obvious to me. This poetry is meant to be performed. So my translation of the Iliad actually began as scripts for performance. I would translate it a little, convene a little audience and do it. And 
I got through the whole thing uh, that way. It definitely was. It existed as performance for hundreds of years before it was written right. down. That's what's yeah. so special about yeah. performing. But how rare is it to get a performance of the Iliad? It's quite rare. Yes, it's a <laughs> <Actually>. long commitment. <laughs> it is. <laughs> but there's kind of a contradiction in your desire to perform the Iliad versus spending a lot of time in deep historical documents to decide what Homer is saying. How, how do you balance that? I don't think I spent a lot of time in deep historical documents. I learned uh, Greek. I have you know, a PhD in classical languages. I can read Homer uh, readily, and I just let the text speak for itself. I, I always have one of the learned commentaries open as I'm translating, make sure I don't miss anything. Um, but it, it, it's a lie for me. I read the Greek out loud before I translate it uh, into English. I, I try to bring it to life in Greek. Now, what can I do with this as a poet uh, in English? That's my process. Well, I, I, as I've said, have the zeal of a new convert, but if somebody out there is listening and is never engaged in any way with the Iliad, how would you encourage them forward? Give it a try. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you just pick up, well, of course, my translation is what I'm recommending, uh, and you... Try to bring it to life yourself. Don't read it silently. Uh, pretend that you're a great actor. And everyone is a great actor, actually. <laughs> this is how we get through life. <laughs> and get into it that way. That would be my recommendation. Well, I'm going to be hamming it up with you, Stan. As I'm looking best forward I can. to it. I really am. <laughs> Stan Lombardo, <laughs> Professor Emeritus of Classics at the University of Kansas. And we will both be, along with local actors, reading his translation of the Iliad on stage this weekend at Emory University. By the way, it begins with those words. Well, you're going to hear a lot more of them if you come and visit us at Emory at the three-day reading beginning at 7 o'clock tonight at the Michael C. Carlos Museum at Emory. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The city of East Point is partnering with Foodwell Alliance for a new growth initiative. The new city agricultural plan includes bringing growers, community leaders, and city officials together to prioritize urban agriculture. GPB reporter Ross Terrell went to the kickoff meeting to learn more about East Point's new agricultural plan. That's Kim Karras, the executive director of Foodwell Alliance. She made the announcement to a room of more than 50 people as they kicked off phase one of the program. But East Point was so innovative, so forward-thinking about how growers and gardens and farms and fruit trees and composting and soil can play a role in the future of your city. Now, both Foodwell and East Point will embark on a year-long journey. It involves community engagement meetings, then working with the Atlanta Regional Commission to turn those meetings into an actual plan and then implementing it with an investment of up to $75,000. The hope is to have something tangible in place by next July. But how did the city of 35,000 residents make it into this program? Well, you can thank Sissy Lang. I caught up with her at the city's farmer's market, which she manages. She's lived in East Point for 54 years and is one of two residents to nominate the city for Food Wells program. She says she started to notice how developers were gobbling up land in the metro region and didn't want that to be the story for her community. 
So my concern is that, you know, we save some of these spaces, that we use these spaces in a really smart way. You know, if, if we're going to build something, let's make sure that there's green space adjunct to it. That's one goal of the program, to change how the city views its green space and unused land. Another, community building. Just ask Tunisio Cianima. He runs Nature's Candy Farms, but recently changed it to an orchard with a focus on stone fruits like peaches and nectarines. Cianima says having more urban farms will allow people to have a deeper connection with their dinner plates. And then, of course, again, just having a more authentic relationship with food. So if you're able to see the individual who grew it and you can really feel their personality and their principles and understand where they come from, well, it makes you also give that same level of value to the food. But he says growing more food locally goes beyond just nutrition and fewer pesticides. And that's what he wants city officials to notice. It will become a strong driver of other ancillary activities. It again becomes a crime reducer. It becomes a tool for anti-recidivism. It becomes a tool for a community gathering. East Point's mayor, Dina Holiday Ingram, agrees. She says the agriculture plan could be the solution to food access for certain residents. According to data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, large parts of East Point are home to low-income residents with little access to grocery stores, meaning they live more than a half mile away and don't have a car. Ingram says they've been struggling to get grocery stores to come to town, even though residents want one. They're asking us, what are we doing? And we're like, we're trying. And they said, okay, well, we'll empower ourselves. She says it's also on them to develop a plan that's sustainable. So what's next? Residents will get the rest of the year through focus groups and interviews to tell Foodwell Alliance and their partners what they're looking for. Then, by next July, East Point and Foodwell will be ready to unveil and implement the city's first agriculture plan. That's GPB reporter Ross Terrell. The city of East Point was selected to pilot this program, but it does plan to expand to other areas of the Atlanta metro. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms recently spoke with my colleague Ricky Bevington about urban agriculture in Metro Atlanta. Mayor Bottoms explained how the city plans to protect pollinators like bees and other beneficial insects with populations now in sharp decline. Well, we have been working through our Office of Sustainability um, with many of our urban farmers to make sure that we are doing what's needed um, to protect our insect population. But there is an entire department in the city of Atlanta, the Office of Sustainability, um, that focuses on issues just like this, issues that may not be top of mind for everyday people in the city of Atlanta, but certainly very important. So I know that this is an issue that's being addressed and being discussed by our Department of Sustainability. You can hear more of Mayor Bottoms addressing city issues with Ricky Bevington monthly right here on GPB. And if you have questions for the mayor, submit them on Twitter using the hashtag questions for Keisha or email them to allatl at gpb.org. GPB is following Ken Burns' lead by celebrating music this month. Burns' country music documentary series begins this Sunday on GPB TV. Georgia-born country music superstar Trisha Yearwood recently released her 14th studio album. It's called Every Girl, and it's her first in 12 years. The Grammy Award-winning artist is now on a bus tour, but my colleague Leah Fleming managed to catch up with her in Atlanta to learn more about Trisha's new music. 
And I want to start with this. This is from, from the song. You say, if they try to hold you down under that water, just come up, baptize, baby. Let it make you stronger. <laughs> if they try to hold you down under that water, just come up, baptize, baby. Let it make you stronger. And you know, I used to think that country music was not my jam because I didn't see myself represented. But in hearing this song, I see that I am every girl just like you are. And that, that gives me were... chills. That's the highest compliment. Yeah. Uh, is that what you were hoping for? Yeah, what I mean, this? I think I think that, you know, trying to find those things that make us feel all in this together mm -hmm. are, is the good thing, you know. And I didn't write this song. I wish I had. But that that when I sing this song live, when I get to that part that's when I just start to feel okay and you just go over the top and then the, another line that comes after that is you got this baby so what if you don't and I love that line because it's like we always are trying to show our best selves and be on our a-game and never admit that we are flawed and have it you know have anything wrong and we did we all do so it's nice to hear it's okay if we're not perfect all the time There's a picture of you, I believe it is. It's a little girl with yeah. her arms <laughs> outstretched. That is you. Yes. Uh, what is this song about and why did you choose that photo? Well, the song for me is uh, being that little girl who had a, had a dream. And that picture I thought represented, you know, when we're little girls and we, we don't, we're not old enough to know to doubt ourselves yet. Nobody's told us we can't do something. Mm -hmm. My arms were outstretched. It's almost like the possibilities are endless. And so to try to channel that that time when you're just dreaming big and you don't have any fear that's a that's a, something we don't, that we lose along the way so you try to recapture it yeah talk about losing it along the way but is there a time you think that we ever get that back some of us are really hoping for that day we well get that back. you're younger than me but yes it'll happen to you <laughs> i think i think turning 50 was like the beginning i'm 54 years old now but the beginning of oh I'm going to be comfortable in my skin, and this is who you're going to get. And uh, it's okay if everybody doesn't think I'm, everybody don't like me, or that mm -hmm. I need to be true to myself. And I think it's hard as a young woman. There's so mm -hmm. many expectations on us to be what other people think we should be. Mm -hmm. And uh, you just kind of, at, at, for me, at 50, I was like, oh, I wish I had, wish I'd felt this way in my 20s. But I don't think you can. Mm -hmm. I think you just have to get there. This is one of the things I love about country music. It tells a story. It's about storytelling. Yeah. And is that what it, it is for you, too? Yeah. yeah, I always, you know, from my very first single, um, they kind of paint a picture, you know, and um, I, I do love that about that. And there are other, I, there's other, I like all kinds of music, so there's a lot of different kinds of artists that inspire me in that way. There's a lot of artists that tell stories, but that's what I'm drawn to. And I do think, I think what you said in the first thing you said was if you can see yourself in the song, then mm -hmm. you can relate. And for me, when I'm listening for songs, I'm looking for that thread of something that I feel draws me in that, that makes me feel like it understands me. So when you were in uh, Nashville, you actually worked at the Hall of Fame, didn't you? I did, I did. I, I, when I got there, I wanted to stay and I got a summer job uh -huh. uh, as a tour guide, minimum wage tour guide. Um, it was great though, because I got to be in this museum with all this history and got to walk through and see these artifacts of all these artists that I had grown up on. Yeah. Did you ever think you were going to be a star, a country music star? Did you say it then? That's going to happen. Well, I think like that little girl with her arms out at five, I was like, yes, absolutely. I mean, I had, you know, I definitely did. And I think that for me, it was never a decision that I never just said, oh, I think singing would be fun. It was always like, okay, I'm a singer.
how do I do this? You know, it was more of a calling for me. So mm -hmm. I, I was always determined that this was my path. And I, I always figured out I mustn't be supposed to do it because I wanted it so badly. I, I didn't have a desire to do something different. So in Nashville, there's this group called uh, Woman Nashville. I believe they're an advocacy group for women in country music, um, particularly to be more equalized when it comes to airtime on the radio. Yes. Um, country music's still very male-dominated. There's still a, lo a lot more male artists that get more airplay than women do. Yeah. And I'm wondering, where's the disconnect? Because I know, you know, women like you are making hits. What's really strange about that to me is, and it's all, it really is country music. Other mm -hmm. genres are really, women are killing it, you know? Yeah. Um, we were that doing that. It's not like, I could understand it more if we had just, we were just moving so far behind everybody else and we'd never had women on the radio. But when I came along in the 90s, there were, there were 10 or 12 women who were dominating the charts. It was, a, it was really a woman's world. Mary Chapin Carpenter and myself and the Judds and Patty Loveless and Reba McIntyre. Mm -hmm. And now it just seems like that's kind of gone the other way. Um, there's like all these common myths like, well, you don't play two women back to back on the radio because people change the channel. And I'm like, well, where's the research on that? <laughs> and there's not any, you know. So some guy in some room said, let's say this. You know? right. So, so it, I think women are finally going, this is not okay. We're, we're, we're done. We're done. Just we always put our head down and we work and we're not complaining, but we're just saying this is not okay. So I think that's the beginning. And there are a lot of male artists in country music who are speaking up about that too and I think that will mm -hmm. um, keep I think it's I think it is slowly starting to change yeah but yeah. they have to it's not it's not a good look <laughs> it isn't because there's so many women that are and what about younger artists um, do you find that you all are supportive of each other as women in country music yeah we are and I think that I think the expectation might be that we should be mm -hmm. competitive and having cat fights and all yeah. that but really I think the because it's difficult we band together and when we you you see it when there's an award show and you see multi-generations of female artists together in a dressing room laughing and you see the young artists coming up and saying I grew up on your music and and just just the real camaraderie and support and you see it you know with social media being so big you see the support when somebody releases an album or when a female song goes to number one you see it and it's a it's a really cool club to be in Trisha, you're what you really are every girl oh you are every girl this is thank awesome you. thank you thinking it was love but it was just 17 Monticello, Georgia native Trisha Yearwood there, speaking with GPB's Morning Edition host, Leah Fleming. Trisha's going to be performing next month in Atlanta as part of her Every Girl tour. Details at our website, gpbnews.org. Our hashtag GPB Loves Music celebration is going on all month, and our friends over on the TV side are getting into the spirit with a collection of postcards from Peach State artists. For one of the postcards, Carrie Harrison and Amy Cooper traveled to an old family farmhouse in Lincolnton, Georgia, and there they met up with the Little Roy and Lizzie show. 
They listened to him play and talked with them about their family's musical history. We play a little bit from everything from like classic country sounds to bluegrass, and we do bluegrass gospel, we do gospel, and uh, we I've done some country music, I've sang with Ty Hurden and all them different people. You know, we are, we are bluegrass kind of bluegrass gospel group, but I always like that word show, so we just named it the Little Roy and Lizzie Show. I mean, it all started off with Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs, Bill Monroe with that sound. Carter family, just a guitar and a bass fiddle or auto harp, you know, that's country music. We've enjoyed playing all kind of music from bluegrass and when I first started the gospel quartets. So I got a little dose of all of it and that's why on the stage I do what I do because of how I was influenced by all these people. Yeah. I play guitar and banjo and I play mandolin a little bit. I play bass fiddle and uh, a fiddle player. <laughs> nah, I ain't no fiddle no player, fiddle. but I know how to play it in my mouth. The appeal of country music to me, you know, when it catches your attention, is something you can relate to. Most of those songs, it was true at the time. It's a story. It was meant to be. I've been playing with him since I was just a little girl, and well, I'm the only one that stayed with him, ain't it, Pat? I guess that's what it was. That's the Little Roy and Lizzie Show, and you can watch a video from this postcard and others like it at gpb.org slash country. And you can find more content from our month-long celebration of music under the hashtag GPBLovesMusic. Coming up, we're going to hear more. The all-female garage punk band The Coat Hangers will be performing at Music Midtown this weekend. We talk with them first when On Second Thought continues. Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Music Midtown begins tomorrow. Acts like Travis Scott, Cardi B, Lizzo, and Vampire Weekend will take the stage over the two-day festival. And on Sunday at 1 p.m., you can catch Atlanta locals, The Coat Hangers. listening to their song Bimbo as we welcome them to the studio, two of their members anyway, of, of the Garage Punk Trio. Meredith Franco, hello. Hello. And Stephanie Luke. Hi. 
<laughs> She's right on cue. Yes. So yes. your band formed back in 2006? Yeah. Did I get that right? Now, back then, Meredith, I think you were working in a dress shop. Not just any dress shop, but like a prom dress yeah. shop? Yeah. Well, actually, when we first met, Julia and I were working at Abadabas. And that's how we met. And a few years later, Julia and I worked at the dress shop. Selling prom dresses, wedding dresses, pageant dresses. <laughs> it's kind so, of hard to imagine. living the dream. Mm -hmm. yeah. Julia Kugel, by the way, she's the other member of the team. And you were working as a bartender, Stephanie? I was bartending and dishwashing and all that fun stuff. Whatever you could do. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And then how did the coat hangers come to be? Uh, I had just moved back from, I was trying to hack it in Hollywood. Didn't do it. And uh, that's okay. And then, uh, so yeah, and then we just started, you know, that I met Meredith through Julia because I had known Julia since high school. Were you shopping for a prom dress? I was told, <laughs> yeah, I was shopping for my fourth wedding dress. It was a very difficult time. No, but, um, but yeah, but no, we just started hanging out and um, we ended up acquiring some instruments in different ways and we just started hanging out and, and playing. Julia's apartment. Julia's apartment in Decatur and just started playing around. We were just, <laughs> because none of us had really played these in, our instruments before, so we were just learning as we went and that was that was the fun part. So. so that sounds like the great origin story of, you know, garage band, like figuring out the instruments. <laughs> just messing around. Well, earlier this year you released your sixth album. It's called The Devil You Know. Let's hear a track from that. This is Step Back. songs on this album have this, you know, kind of signature sneer, gritty kind of lo-fi sound, but some are maybe a little bit gentler, I think, like this one. Um, this is taking on a delicate subject. What's it about? Addiction and mm -hmm. living. A lot of our friends have passed away or are trying to be, well, or are sober and it's just yeah, living with that and... Losing people and yeah. <laughs> trying to take a, take a step back, yeah. step back. the mm -hmm. addiction. That's a tough thing to win. I mean, yeah. it's heavy in your industry. Obviously, I mean mm -hmm. everywhere. Let's yeah. not say that. But especially uh, yeah. what we do, yeah, in the music industry. <laughs> Is that something any of you have ever struggled with? Yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. drink about. We know how day. to drink. That's yeah. true. <laughs> especially, we're I mean, on tour, especially. Yeah, it's just you have so much time off. Like you know, when you're on, when we're on tour, especially, you know, you're just sitting at a bar for six hours, and you're like, just okay. Well, what? You know, sometimes we'll walk around. Yeah. And, you know, we try. We have friends in in lots of different cities now, so we'll try to go hang out with them or whatever. But some days, yeah, and then some days, you know, we've been in the van for twelve hours, so all you want after that is a stiff drink, you know, and then. Yeah, you can get caught up in it, but yeah, and I imagine with performing and writing, there's the whole idea of like, oh, this is how I become creative. I don't know if that happens to you. Yeah, 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 totally. So, uh, but this sounds to me like I don't know, compassionate punk. If you can see <laughs> those two <laughs> words that. together, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Good. That's why you're the professional. Yeah. <laughs> Truth be told, my producer Amelia actually suggested that that was the well right played. Term. Yes, okay, well played beautiful. is right. But obviously, human beings are complex, and you know, you can have rebellion and tenderness at the same time. How, how do you get that across with sound? Every, just being honest. Just yeah, maybe? I was just about to say, just yeah. being genuine and just yeah. being yeah, being honest with what we're writing and yeah. 
Do you think, I mean, so we've seen a number of great women through punk's history. Patti Smith comes to mind, you know, the slits, polystyrene of X-ray specs, Xene. Do you look up to women in punk in particular or just punk musicians in general? Um, I think just any women artist yeah. in general, not necessarily just punk. Like um, Patsy Cline, Nina Simone. Yeah. Yeah. I put a spell on you. Not even yeah. just, and not just women. women. Yeah, yeah, just musicians that yeah. we admire, and or just women in general, like our moms. Yeah. yeah. Well, take me back to like your 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 um, middle school bedroom. Who are your pictures up on the wall? I don't even remember. I won't tell you. Because <laughs> I will not tell you that. That's my. I mean, I what, still was it like Sean like... Cassidy or something. <laughs> it was. There might have been some new kids on the block in, in elementary school, but. Uh, but yeah. I don't know, yeah. But, but being an all-punk female band, do you feel like you were held to a different kind of standard? You know, you had to prove something differently in, compar in comparison to men who kind of like stamped punk right. as punk. I think it yes depends. And no. Yes and no. It's a catch-22. Because yeah. then you don't want to get on that level of thinking like, oh, well, this is why this person is talking to us like this. Maybe he talks like that with everybody. Yeah. You know, so it's like you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot by thinking about it too much but there's definitely sometimes you can tell that you're being talked to in a different manner mm -hmm. like being talked down to yeah you know or if our maybe if our significant others are on tour with us and they're male you know the f the first person that walks in you know th they go they to the, go to the guys them. and they're like yeah. hey it's so nice to have and they're like we're not in the band yeah like this, which is these, pretty funny yeah which is always funny to us because you know it's just about equality and just being treated equal as everybody else you know that's an interesting thing. Yeah. They I gravitate toward the men. I mean, this is certainly something that happens in all entertainment. Well, all of Probably life. Probably everything. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the music industry overall. I feel like not so much anymore. Yeah. So, like, we've seen it change. years yeah. ago yeah. since yeah. we we've started. We've seen it change, yeah, over the years oh, that we've been together. How have you watched it change? There's, I think, that, well, there's more mm -hmm. women in um, our genre of music, I guess you could say more female bands all female bands or at least mostly female bands and or even like women's <clears throat> sound yeah or like even loaders and stuff like that and just yeah oh, just, who are doing uh, the back yeah, of line people uh -huh. who yeah. Are, yeah being the sound person yeah and, uh, you know i mean we we played um where was it in brook it was in brooklyn it was an all-female yeah. crew you know like the everybody so and it was great and it went super smooth i'm yeah. just gonna say that. <laughs> you know i don't know if i can i say badass you okay. just did, I know. apparently. <laughs> but it is. What's your cussing policy? Yeah. <laughs> it is. It was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but when you do encounter that, is it something you just kind of grit your teeth through, or do you feel like you have the freedom or even responsibility to say something? I think you know. It's like if anything, we just kind of give it back. Give it back. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say I can't say that word, but yeah. And we try to win them over. Yeah, to, you know, and it actually. usually works. And it usually yeah. works because you just want to. I mean, it's all about having. This is like a really great job to have. You know, it's like so you want to make, you want to have fun with it. And you don't want to get too serious about stuff. Well, I'm wondering if treatment is different in different places, like you know, in a show in Atlanta versus in Europe, for example. Well, yeah. I was thinking about that sound guy in Berlin. 
Tell me about that, him. Well, he just was being like super sassy and like you could tell he didn't want to be there. But yeah. like Julianne yeah. stuck the short guy. Yeah, like yeah. giving it back to him like, oh, you're going to talk to me like this. Well, I'll yeah. talk to you like that. Yeah. And then he ended up loving us. Yeah. He's like, you guys are yeah. crazy. So. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> okay. And we, yeah, by the end of the end, he, he did a great job and it was fun and it was a great show. And yeah. Well, let's hear some more of your music. This is from the 2016 record Nosebleed Weekend. The song is called Make It Right. That is Make It Right from my guests, the Coat Hangers. Stephanie Luke and Meredith Franco are with us, two parts of the Atlanta Garage Punk Trio. They're going to be performing at Music Midtown this weekend. That's on Sunday at 1 o'clock. We have a lot of family coming, so we're excited. Yeah, so this is a hometown yeah. hometown gig for you. Mm-hmm. Do your parents, your grandparents, other people usually come out and see well, your punk shows? Are your parents coming? <laughs> no. Oh, it's but too I hot. know, yeah, <laughs> Julia's mom and sister are coming. My family's in Massachusetts, so. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, my brother's coming, My actually. sister's coming. Yeah, we got some friends. Yeah, yeah. so it's going to be a family affair. It'll be fun. Well, and Stephanie, you're the drummer of the band, right? Yes. For the most part. Yes. Emeritus, you play bass. Mm-hmm. But all three members, you guys switch around. You sing uh, on different songs. Mm-hmm. How do you make that decision? Like, who sings which song? Well, when? we switch instruments, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Songs. You know, just, well, it's just like, who can do what and who wants to do what and... It's just kind of like the whole reason we started that was just kind of remind each other of how hard the other one is working. And you know? we so think no one... of different like rhythms yeah. or we play differently. So it's fun to just Mix it switch up. it up. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Very egalitarian thinking mm-hmm. like yeah. so other people can remember what <laughs> yeah. it's like. But is it difficult to do in the moment to kind of switch your brain to ah bass or no drums? No, I'm doing this. I don't think so. We usually save it towards the end. So, so by that time, yeah, <laughs> it's just like we, that's free like for kind all. of it. Yeah, <laughs> it might be actually to try and switch back. Right. <laughs> I guess for a couple years in a row now, you've done New Year's Eve shows at Atlanta's The Earl. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is a legendary venue here, and we actually have some audio of you performing one of those gigs, <laughs> Squeaky Tiki. All right, who's playing the little squeaky? Julia. Julia. You get it, girl. (laughs) Okay, both of you are laughing when you hear that. What is it like to hear that for you? It's so fun. That song is so fun. And Julia, her instrument is the squeaky tiki. So it's fun to just watch her go go crazy. Yeah. Yeah, because she doesn't have her guitar, so she gets to go in the crowd. And What is that like, ringing in the new year on stage at the Earl? Oh, it's always so fun. Well, you yeah. guys seem like you have a lot of fun on mm-hmm. stage. Is that, I mean, is that the point? Is that what got you there yeah, in the first place? Yeah. It's our, like, our release, so. And it's, yeah, it's supposed to be fun. And, yeah. you know, I think, like, an audience can tell when a, a musician or a band is being genuine, you know, with what they're doing on stage, whether it's, like, a, like a performance and an act or if it's, like, just, like, a real uh, moment of, like, a burst of energy and a burst of, you know, where everyone kind of comes together. And that's the best part is like when the crowd gets super, you know, you feed reactionary, off of you know, yeah. yeah. And you kind of feed off of each other. And it's, it's just so much fun. 
to, to get that back from the audience. And the Earl has always been so good to us, and we always have such a good time playing there. So, well, yeah. And all these people are in the audience, you know, wanting to celebrate the new year with you and your music. That's quite mm -hmm. a feat. Yeah, let's get sloppy. Yeah. <laughs> let's get sloppy, Atlanta. Remember that? Yeah. Atlanta used to be real sloppy. What's now, happened? now there's a lot of condos. Yeah. A lot of condos out there. Condos are the anti-sloppy. Oh they're yeah, they they look like yeah, I'm not gonna go into it, but they they're very square. <laughs> there's a lot of angles, there's a lot of I don't know, corners, I don't know. They're, yeah, it's freaking me out a little bit. But do you so. think it can still be punk, the, you know, the uh, Atlanta with lots of condos? Square condos, square edge condos? I don't know. We'll see. We're, we'll see. I don't know where, yeah, I don't know where we're going to live, but <laughs> we'll see. This is a real question, but, you know, yeah. the, this is part of the thing that punk rock really originally came from, right? Yeah. You know, it's like um, people who were not, not it, it was a very working class thing mm -hmm. back right. in the day. I mean, I think that's shifted, but where you right. Well, something? it's like, you know, it's like in our audience isn't just one genre of people, you know, we, we try to be all inclusive, you know, we don't want to be like, oh, well, you don't look like this and you, you shouldn't come to the show, you know, like we that's always the antithesis of punk ages too, like, yeah, from little kids to, to, yeah, yeah, to older. So it's like, and it's like, yeah, it's, it's all inclusive and. Yeah, I don't want to sound like um, like a jerk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, do you? Do, I, I guess the whole question is like, you know, if you're living a good, comfortable life, can you still sing punk rock music? You know what I mean? Like, it came from a place of real rebellion, and then you know, now you watch TV commercials with Iggy and the Stooges yeah. in the background. Do you know what right. I'm saying? It's crazy, right? So what? So. How do you stay true to that kind of original spirit? I feel I like everyone always has some sort of struggle. Even if you are, say, comfortable in life, there's always some sort of struggle, right? Yeah. Right. Well said. Yeah. So yeah. there always is that little, like, ah. Yeah. And Everybody we're lucky a little at, mad about some. Yeah. And <laughs> I we're don't lucky think enough everyone... to have the band to let it out. Yeah. So. And everyone can relate to that, I mm -hmm. think. Right. So that even feeling. if you live in a square edge condo, you got you you got things that are. I'm sure you. they have way more problems than I do, because they have to pay for stuff. Yeah. <laughs> more money, more problems. I think that's a saying. I think you're onto something. Maybe I don't know. I just made it up. I'm just here on the spot. On second thought, you heard it first. Okay. So on this on this Sunday, you're going to be performing at Music Midtown. Just the beginning of a number of tour dates you're doing. So anything particularly exciting that you're looking forward to? Well, we're going to Florida, going which to is Florida. always exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have really good shows down there. It's always a fun time. And we'll be by the beach. So. Yeah, that never hurts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where is, your, where is your crowd? Where where do you find the people? I mean, is it different in different places, yeah. obviously? Yeah, every city is mm -hmm. different. Because um, it's just like you kind of like, like the first three songs, everyone's just kind of like standing there, arms crossed, just like, what what is this going to, you know? And then you kind of like, once we get towards like the middle of the set, you can tell everyone just kind of like loosens up. Yeah. And it's just, it's like, oh, I don't have to try to look cool or I don't have to be uncomfortable. And then we can just all have a good time together. So that's what we try to do. And can you always get there? Give me a few shots and I'll be, I'll be right there. <laughs> I'll be right there, dude. <laughs> Which brings us full circle. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So New Year's Eve. Yeah, it's a couple months away, but are you going to be at the Earl again? I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. You should stay tuned. <laughs> From Stephanie, Luke, and thank you so much. Thank you so thank much. You. I'm such a fan of yours. Thank uh, you so thank much. Thank you. Yeah. Meredith Franco, thank, thank you. you.
<laughs> two members of the Garage Punk Trio, the Coat Hangers. They're going to be performing at Music Midtown Festival on Sunday. Sunday. <laughs> and remember that you can also follow along with all of our musical series and join the conversation. We're using the hashtag GPB Loves Music. And you can find more on our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought, or on our Twitter page at OST Talk. That is it for today. We're going to leave you with another song by the Coat Hangers. This one is called Memories. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. We had help today from Alec Kaslow. Our interns are Allison Kraussman, Jessica Lowell, and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for listening to On Second Thought. You